Biographical Sketch of George B. McClellan, Part 2, from McClellan's Own Story by George Brinton McClellan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Manalakis. While politicians were plotting, McClellan was working. It is impossible to overestimate the laborious character of the general's life. His whole soul was in his work. His every energy and thought was given to it. He was always, while in Washington and while in the field, in the habit of seeing personally, as far as possible, to the execution of important orders. Out of countless illustrations of this which might be given, let one suffice. The lieutenant colonel of that superb regiment, the 1st Connecticut Artillery, wrote to me from the works before Yorktown that, a little after midnight the previous rainy night, while the men were at work in the trenches, McClellan rode up, attended by a single orderly, sprang from his horse, inspected the work, gave some directions, remounted, and rode away. About 3 a.m. he reappeared as before, approved the work, gave further directions, and vanished. My correspondent met him at his headquarters before 7 a.m., and also met there a friend whose regiment was stationed some miles away, who told him that the general had surprised them by a visit and inspections at about 2 a.m., the soldiers soon learned not to be surprised at his appearance among them anywhere at any hour of day or night. He made Washington secure. He created the Army of the Potomac. He gathered the vast material for a war. Called to the chief command, he brought order out of chaos in all the armies. He organized the first and only plan for the war in all the country. He sent successful expeditions with detailed orders to North Carolina, New Orleans, and elsewhere in pursuance of his comprehensive scheme, in which concerted action everywhere was to be in direct relation to the chief act, the taking of Richmond. On this plan, the war went on after his retirement. When he was ready to wield the vast power he had created, he left Washington at the head of the Army of the Potomac to strike the decisive blow at Richmond. Instantly, the operations of the enemy in the rear began. He was removed from the command-in-chief, and no successor appointed. All his comprehensive plan was shattered. The war secretary, succeeding practically to the command, neglected even to carry out his orders for the completion of the defenses of Washington. The subsequent defeat of Pope was directly chargeable to this neglect, and other like neglects led to other disasters. When he reached the peninsula and met the enemy, his army was suddenly reduced by the withdrawal of one-third of its force. He had planned to turn Yorktown, he now went over it. The country rang with a preconcerted outcry which the politicians raised. The siege of Yorktown was denounced as slow. It occupied less than twenty days and has no parallel for swiftness in the history of the war. The plan of campaign having been overturned by the reduction of the army, the general formed a new plan and advanced rapidly on it. Again the War Department interfered and defeated it, ordering him to stretch his right to the north of Richmond to effect the junction of of McDowell's corps, now promised, but to come overland. Again and again, McDowell was coming, but never came. His advance was within sound of McClellan's cannon, when he was finally withdrawn. Assuredly, if the secretary had deliberately planned the destruction of the army, he would have given precisely the orders he did, and would have handled the first corps exactly as he did handle it. No trap could have been better set by an enemy. Only the consummate generalship of McClellan, and the heroism of the Army of the Potomac in the successful battles of the Seven Days saved it from the fate to which it had been consigned. 
the Army of the Potomac was recalled to Washington instead of being reinforced on the banks of the James. All the lives and all the agonies of the country which were expended in regaining that same position two years afterward were wasted for the only purpose of getting rid of McClellan. There are many open questions in regard to the treatment which McClellan received from the power behind the throne in Washington, which will be answered only when more such records as Mr. Chase's private diary shall be discovered and published. Why was General Halleck authorized to assure McClellan that he was recalled to Washington to take command of the combined forces, his own army and General Pope's? Was there then, and continuously afterward, in the minds of Mr. Stanton and his associates, a fear of McClellan and the army? The charge was not infrequently made that he intended to seize the government. The devotion of the army to him, with their indignation at his and their treatment by the War Department, might arouse apprehension minds not noted for personal courage. It is no secret that this fear prevailed in the War Department after September 2nd, and especially when the final order was sent relieving McClellan. Possibly such apprehension had something to do with the holding out to the general the idea that he was to command the combined forces, and with the adoption of the plan of withdrawing the army from his command instead of relieving him. That the president had no part in his ultimate purpose can hardly be doubted. He honestly desired to see an army always between Washington and the enemy, nor did he or Mr. Stanton learn till years afterward, when Grant was south of Richmond, the military truth which McClellan reiterated, that the true defense of Washington was on the bank of the James River. It is hardly worthwhile now to say that if any such fears prevailed among the men in Washington, it was because they could not realize the possible existence of such an upright, pure, and unselfish servant of his country as McClellan. He entertained no thought of anything to be done by him except duty. Absolutely obedient to orders, he accepted as his work whatever his superiors set before him. It was not till the fate of the country depended on his assuming power and exercising it without orders that, staking his life for the people, he led the army to South Mountain and Antietam. There is no passage in the history of any man who has ever lived more startling in the contrast it presents than the story of McClellan's recall and return to Washington. The commander, who had for months been the victim of political intrigues, baffled in every effort to serve his country, ordered against his judgment and protest hither and thither by ignorant and inimical superiors, the general loving and loved by a great army now removed from his command, sat, or paced to and fro, with a little group of staff officers and a few wounded veterans around him in his tent, listening in anxiety beyond words to the sound of distant cannon firing on his old troops, and was even compelled to ask the password for the night from the military governor of the small city in whose outskirts his tent was pitched. His personal enemies had triumphed. The war was now to be very long and very bloody. They had effected his disgrace. But a few hours changed the scene. The defeated army of the Union was rushing homeward in broken masses. An exultant enemy was marching on the capital. The war secretary and the nominal general-in-chief, the trustees of the Union and the military heads of the squad of politicians who had brought about the disaster, had ordered the arsenal to be emptied and abandoned. It was said also to be burned. Frightened at the awful catastrophe they had caused, the politicians disappeared from sight and were not seen or heard by the people again until, with recovered breath, in assured safety, they reopened their attack on the general toward whom, for the time, 
all eyes in the land were directed as the only possible savior of his country. The people, in the person of their president, who alone in Washington preserved sound judgment and a serene mind, went to the lately insulted and displaced general, and with tears not unfitting the occasion, for his tears were the emotion of a betrayed and outraged nation, asked him to forget his wrongs and save the country. The falsehood was afterwards circulated that he hesitated and sought to make conditions. He accepted the new responsibility instantly, for every second was of priceless value. He saved the arsenal which cowardice would have destroyed. The wild scene of joy with which the army received him can never be the subject of the artist's pencil, for it was in the darkness of night, among the Virginia forests, when the good horse of the general, accompanied by one faithful aide, the gallant Colburn, brought him at that tremendous pace the soldiers knew, to meet them retreating, gloomy as the black night that lay on the hills around them. But the wild shout of welcome that rolled from company to company and corps to corps was prophetic of South Mountain and Antietam. Who shall say that the soldiers of the Army of the Potomac did not know that man and that he did not merit their admiring love? He gathered them in his hand. He made a new army of the defeated, disorganized, and decimated regiments of his own army and the Army of Virginia, reorganized it, and supplied its pressing needs as it marched, followed and overtook the exultant enemy, flushed with success, in Maryland, and in fifteen days after that night of disastrous retreat, led his heroic troops to the victorious fields of South Mountain and Antietam. It is one of the settled truths of history that constant reiteration of a statement, however untrue, will impress many minds with its truthfulness. The impatience of the people afforded to the enemies of McClellan the opportunity to represent him as constitutionally slow. There are not a few who believe it. There was no foundation for the slur, and anyone who studies dates and informs himself of the actual time occupied by him in any of his work will be surprised at the currency which such a criticism obtained. He was calm and cool in judgment, never impulsive, but always as rapid in action as the circumstances required. If campaigns are to be compared, it is well to note that in the West Virginia and Maryland campaigns, he was his own master and director, while the Peninsular campaign was actually three several campaigns, so made by the interference of the War Department, and all three subject to that constant interference. The order of August 30th had removed McClellan from command of the Army of the Potomac. The order of September 2nd had only placed him in command of the fortifications of Washington. The history of this order is sufficiently discussed in a note on page 538, etc. He had, for the safety of the country and the preservation of the Union, assumed command and fought the battles of South Mountain and Antietam with a halter around his neck. No change was made in his command after the Battle of Antietam. The entire confidence with which he had received the orders of the President on the morning of September 2nd was characteristic. When asked afterward why he did not on that occasion ask written orders, he replied with a smile, It was no time for writing, and in fact I never thought of it. The President fully approved of his determination not to lead the army on an offensive campaign into Virginia without shoes, clothing, and supplies, and without horses for cavalry and transportation. The table, which will be found on pages 632-633 of this volume, demonstrates beyond cavil both the necessities of the troops and the dates at which they were supplied. Without supplies, cavalry, or transportation, no general would have moved an hour sooner than he did. 
When ready, he moved with his accustomed rapidity and skill. The movement accomplished his purpose. He had placed the enemy at a fatal disadvantage. If he were brought to battle, there was no reasonable doubt that McClellan had so divided him that he would be beaten in detail. If he declined battle, the Army of the Potomac had the inside track in a race to Richmond. In either event, McClellan was about to win another and decisive victory. Someone reported to the politicians in Washington the imminent danger of a great Union victory by the Army under McClellan. Perhaps when time reveals correspondence, it will be known who sent the intelligence. McClellan's dispatches had communicated facts, not expectations. There was no visible reason for interfering with him at this moment. But the final pressure now brought to bear on the president was successful. He issued a discretionary order to General Halleck, who made haste to exercise the discretion at once, and November 5, 1862, McClellan was ordered to turn over the command to Burnside and go to Trenton, New Jersey. He lies there now on a hill overlooking the Delaware. But he never received there or elsewhere order, thanks, or any recognition from the government of his country. Nor did he ever expect or desire it. To him, as to all pure minds, the ample compensation for labor and self-sacrifice was in the consciousness of duty done. He held himself in readiness to serve the cause should his services be needed, but they were not sought. In 1864, the political elements were still in a chaotic condition. Two parties had been evolved from the exciting conditions caused by the war and the ambitions of politicians. The great body of conservative men were practically unattached to either. The Democratic Party nominated him for the presidency. His reluctant acceptance of the nomination was a new service, not his smallest, to the Republic, concentrating the conservative element in the country on a platform which he made for himself in his letter of acceptance placing his supporters firmly on the principle of supporting the war and prosecuting it vigorously till the Union and Constitution should be established in safety. How many votes he received will never be known, for the count was in the hands of those who had not scrupled to defeat him in battles with the enemies of the Union. The soldiers' votes were effectually disposed of by the Secretary of War. He had not expected to be elected, and the result was a great relief to him. His earnest desire had always been to regain the enjoyments of home life, of which he had had so brief an experience. He resigned his commission as Major General in the Army on the day of the presidential election, November 8, 1864, and immediately sought work as a civilian for the support of his family. But the bitterness of political enmity followed him into private life. His eminent abilities made his services desirable to many great corporations, and he was offered one and another position of honorable employment, such as he desired. In each case, he ascertained that the offer was made by a majority over a minority who had strong prejudices against him and opposed his appointment. Acceptance was impossible to him under such circumstances. In January 1865, he went to Europe with his family. His reasons were sad enough, expressed to me in a sentence I well remember. I cannot find a place to earn my living here and I am going to stay abroad till I am forgotten, then come back and find work, which I may get when these animosities have cooled down. But the people would not forget him. In 1868, when it was rumored that he was coming home, soldiers and citizens proposed to receive him with honors. He wrote emphatically protesting against any such demonstration, and after his return insisted on declining it. 
the demand of his old comrades and friends became so pressing that he at last consented to receive a procession on a designated evening a few days in advance, provided it should be spontaneous, without previous advertisement in newspapers. He expected a few hundred old soldiers and friends in an affair of a few minutes. Instead, he received the most impressive ovation which has ever been given to a private citizen of this country, perhaps not excepting those in times of the highest political excitement. The vast and broad procession of men who honored him passed hour after hour in front of the balcony on which he stood, while fifty or a hundred thousand crowded the street and square to witness and share in the demonstration. At midnight that night he said to me, Well, it is over now, and I hope I can be quiet hereafter. But an American with such a hold on the hearts of people cannot be quiet. There was no man in America up to the day of his death to whom so many of his fellow citizens were attached by ties of affection and respect. There was what men call a magnetism about him which won all hearts. The politician, such a man, honest and unapproachable, is always a subject of apprehension. Party politicians, Democrats as well as Republicans, feared him as a possible rival or opponent. He received no favors from either, and to his death owed no gratitude to either party or any of their leaders. He was as carefully neglected by one as by the other, except when his great personal influence was wanted in a political campaign. He established his residence, known as Maywood, on Orange Mountain, in New Jersey, where he built a house and brought around him treasures of literature and art, memorials of faithful friends, of far travel, of scenes in his life which were pleasant to remember. Conspicuous in his own room was a shining mass of the long black hair of the horse Dan Webster, faithful among the faithful on a score of battlefields. In 1877, he was elected governor of New Jersey. Had it been possible for Democratic Party politicians to control the nomination, he would not have been selected. His administration was eminently successful, rich in benefit to the educational, industrial, and judicial systems of the state, and wholly free from partisanship. And here it may be added that his experience had taught him to recognize the party politician whenever he came into contact with one, and to estimate him at his precise worth. He had accepted the governorship, urged on him, as an opportunity of doing good service to his state, but he was glad when the end of his term of office came. He had resolved to pass the remainder of his life as a private citizen. During its later years, he went abroad several times, to Europe, Egypt, and the Holy Land, enjoying travel and study and the pleasure of warm social intercourse with many of the most distinguished soldiers, statesmen, and scholars of various countries, who were his correspondents and friends. His ample knowledge of modern languages made him at home in all countries, and enabled him to accumulate stores of information. He was thoroughly familiar with the progress of political as well as military thought and events in Europe and at home. In the autumn of 1885, he had several severe attacks of pain in the region of the heart. After one of these, he yielded to the advice of his excellent physician and remained at home, resting for some days. On the afternoon of October 28th, he drove out with his daughter and passed the evening in pleasant conversation with his family. Towards 11 o'clock, after the evening prayers, which were the family custom, he went to the working room, wrote for a brief time, and then went to bed, taking, as he generally did, a book which he read for a while. A sharp attack of the same acute pain suddenly seized him. The physician, summoned to his side, administered remedies, but the agony continued. He left his bed for a large chair in which he sat. No expression of suffering escaped him. 
On the contrary, he spoke only cheerfully and pleasantly to the servants, whom he was sorry to call up, and to his wife and daughter, to whom he once in a while addressed a bright word of affection. About three o'clock in the morning he looked towards Mrs. McClellan, and said in a low voice to the physician, "'Tell her I am better now.' The next moment his head rested on the chair back, and the good soldier was gone. The rewards which are withheld here, whether by reason of the malice of enemies or the neglect of friends, are of no account there. His funeral was, in accordance with his own wishes, often expressed, that of a private citizen. His body was brought to New York to my house, in which he had always been at home. While thousands of citizens filled the neighboring streets, he lay lifelike, and around him stood a group of great men. The commanders of the opposing armies, which had met at Yorktown and in the Peninsular Campaign, were both there, one living, the other dead. Strong men, generals, old soldiers of many battlefields, his comrades and his foes, looked at his calm face. I have never seen, never expect to see again such a scene, so many stout men in tears. Such eyes shed tears only for the great and good. Then followed the simple services in the Madison Square Presbyterian Church, of which he had been a member until he became a ruling elder in the church at Orange. From the church he was carried to Trenton. Great throngs awaited the arrival of the train at the station, and crowded the streets through which the procession passed for two miles. Thousands of silent mourners were assembled in the cemetery. His grave was in his private plot on a hill overlooking the flow of the Delaware. A clergyman, one who loved him, said the last words of faith and hope as he was laid in the grave. So we buried him. Most public men live two lives, the one that which the people see, the other that which none see unless it be a few intimate friends and companions of ours of freedom. McClellan, the soldier and patriot, is well known to the people, has been diversely judged by them according to the amount of correct information they have received, and according to those prejudices of political and other associations which affect all our opinions of public men of our own time. Whatever be their judgment of the soldier and statesman, few if any outside of the circle of his intimate friends have had any idea of the real man. Public men are too often measured by the familiar standards of public life. He was a man such as we seldom know. His experiences in life were varied. Educated as a soldier, he had devoted his life to the profession and was one of the most accomplished military scholars of the world. His military library was large, in various languages, always increasing, every book thoroughly studied. He continued these studies faithfully to his death. Military operations in every part of the world commanded his close observation. He supplied himself with maps and all information in current literature, followed movements of armies, kept himself familiar with every phase of campaigns, whether in Europe, in Afghanistan, in Egypt, or in South Africa. While this was his professional study, he occupied himself with almost equally thorough study of subjects very remote from military matters. He was a general student of the literature of the world. He read freely most of the languages of Europe, and kept up with the progress of thought and discussion in history, philosophy, and art. He was especially interested in archaeology, and having all his life retained and used his knowledge of ancient languages found abundant delight in reading archaeologic publications and in following the work of explorers. In all departments of scholarly reading, he was constant and unwearying, and he never forgot what he had once learned. Fitted by his attainments for the society of the learned, he had the marked characteristic of the true scholar. 
the desire to know more, and therefore the habit of seeking instead of offering information. Few suspected his mastery of subjects on which he only asked questions when thrown in contact with recognized masters. In general conversation, he more frequently sought information than gave it. But when drawn out to give it, his expression was concise, vigorous, clear. His extended knowledge of ancient and modern languages made him master of his own. His public papers are models of pure style. His habit of writing was swift, and he never hesitated for the precise word to express the exact shade of meaning he intended. His dispatch books, containing the autograph originals of his dispatches during the war, are marvels, since with whatever haste he wrote, he wrote without erasure or alteration on subjects where each word was of vital importance. That his life was one of constant occupation may be judged from what has been said. He had no idle hours for those cannot be called idle which were given to social duties and the enjoyments of that home life whose beauty and happiness were perfect. His wife and children were his companions, and a perpetual sunshine was in the household. He was full of cheer, life, vigor, always ready for whatever would make any one of them happy. And this leads me to say that of all men I have ever known, McClellan was the most unselfish. Never in his public life nor in his private life did he ever seek anything for himself. He was constantly doing something for someone else, always seeking to do good, confer pleasure, relieve sorrow, gratify a whim, do something for another. He had his own amusements, but in those he sought the good of others. He had devoted a great deal of attention to ceramic art, and had collected many fine examples. He was an excellent judge of genuineness of specimens, but his love of old china was not for mere pleasure, it was for historical and industrial considerations. And New Jersey owes him a vastly larger debt than she knows for the great advance made in her pottery productions through his special personal efforts while and after he was governor of that state. In his elegant home, with ample table furniture of old historic porcelains, gathered with admirable judgment and taste in his European trips, he was especially proud of and fond of using and showing beautiful services made at Trenton and potteries which he often visited and to whose advancement he had, while governor and afterward, directed earnest attention. The personal affection which existed between McClellan and the soldiers of the Army of the Potomac is historical. It grew with years on both sides. On his it was a marked trait of his character. He would make great sacrifices of his own pleasure and comfort to render a service to any one of them. They were a vast family, and not a few of them came to him for aid in distress. None came in vain. His charity was abundant. He sympathized with every one who was in trouble or sorrow, and his sympathy was practical and useful, for his person and his purse were devoted to its uses. An Irish servant in a New York house saw her brother's name in the list of killed at Antietam, and started off forthwith to find his grave. When she came back, she told her story to the family. She found her way to the battlefield and after a while to the graves where someone told her the men of her brother's regiment were buried. It was a lonesome place above ground then, for the army had moved away. She was searching among the graves for a familiar name on the stakes when she saw, riding down the road which passed at some distance from the burial place, what she called a lot of soldiers on horseback. When they came abreast of her, the leader, who was a little in advance, called a halt, sprang to the ground, and walked across the open field to her. "'What are you looking for, my good woman?' he said. She told him. "'What was your brother's regiment?' she answered. 
You are only one of thousands who want to know today where their dead are lying here, he said. I hope you will find your brother's grave. Don't mourn too much for him. He died a soldier's death. Then turning, he called, Orderly? A soldier came. Stay with this woman and help her find her brother's grave. Report to me this evening. And he went back, remounted, and the company rode on at a gallop. After a while, the orderly found the grave, and she knelt there and prayed. Then she asked the soldier, Who was that gentleman that told you to help me? That, said the orderly. Why didn't you know him? That was little Mac. God bless him, I said, was the end of her story. Innumerable like prayers of grateful souls of men and women, with those words, God bless him, have battered the gates of heaven. It is surely unnecessary to say that he was a gentleman in every sense of the word. In social life, he was perfectly simple in his manner, wholly unaffected, always genial, having rare conversational powers with all classes of persons, devoutly respectful to ladies. This deference to the female sex was a marked characteristic. I note an illustration of it which I find in many of his private letters, some in this volume. When at the head of the army, and occupying a position only second to the president, he received thousands of visitors who came from mere curiosity, introduced by senators or others to see the young general. In mentioning such visits, he invariably says that he was presented to the ladies, never uses what would have been a perfectly correct expression under the circumstances, the ladies were presented to me. In person, McClellan was five feet nine inches tall, with great breadth of shoulders and solid, not superfluous, muscle. He measured 45 inches around the chest. His physical strength in his younger life was very great. He seldom exerted it in later years. He contracted disease in the Mexican War, which never wholly left him, and which doubtless somewhat impaired his strength. But in 1863 I have seen him bend a quarter dollar over the end of his thumb by pressure between the first and second finger of his hand. That same evening we were sitting together, three, one of whom was a distinguished officer who weighed over 250. They tell me, General, said I, that McClellan can throw you over his head. So they say was a somewhat uncertain response. McClellan sprang from his chair and crossed the room rapidly with his hand stretched out to seize the giant. Let me alone, General, he exclaimed. Let me alone. He can do it. He has done it. He can toss me in his arms like a baby. To the very last day of his life, his step was quick, firm, elastic. The expression of that uniform cheerfulness, buoyancy, and enjoyment of life which he possessed and which he always communicated to those around him. I think I shall be understood in saying that his physical bearing was such that of all men he was the very last with whom those who knew him could connect any thought of death. I have left to the last to speak of the controlling feature of McClellan's character and life. His religion was deep, earnest, practical, not vague or ill-defined to himself or others, not obtrusive, but outspoken when occasion required, and when outspoken, frank and hearty. For it was part and parcel of his soul— I must use brief words, and I seek to make them distinct in defining his creed, which was clear as crystal, more steadfast than the hills, the faith once delivered to the saints in its pure simplicity. With his intellectual powers, which were of the highest, and with his heart, which was supremely gentle, as trustful all his life as any child's, he was servant and follower of Jesus Christ, in whom he believed as God of God. In all his life, public and private, every purpose was formed, every act done in the light of that faith. 
It was this which not only produced in him that stainless purity of walk and conversation which all who knew him recognized, but also gave him strength for all the great works of a great life. It was this which created that magnetic power so often spoken of, won to him that marvelous devotion of his soldiers, made all who knew him regard him with affection, those who do him best love him most. Out of the private correspondence which has come into my hands, I have selected, and ventured to make public here, two letters. These, better than anything I can say, will serve to open, for those who only knew him as a public man, a view of that inner life, his real life, which he lived among his familiar friends. New York, August 18th, 1879. My dear General, passing through South Street, I saw a magnificent yacht-like ship, apparently new, called the General McClellan. You have probably seen her. If not, she deserves a visit. I am sure you are tired of being governor or anything else, for no matter what the title be, the result is always the same. Work, work unceasingly. Now suppose we gather our household gods and sail away in this good ship until we come to the land where it is always afternoon. This would be better than Orange Mountain or the Salt Sea of Long Island. With kind regards to Mrs. McClellan, believe me, yours, S. L. M. Barlow. General McClellan. Orange, September 3, 1879. My dear Sam, your welcome note of the 18th August reached me when on the point of starting off for a trip from home. I was very glad to see those leaning back characters once more. Some years ago I saw, near Mr. Alsop's office, a ship named for me, probably the same you saw the other day. I fancy, Sam, that we will never reach that land where it is always afternoon in any ship built by mortal hands. Our fate is to work, and still to work, as long as there is any work left in us, and I do not doubt that it is best. For I can't help thinking that when we reach that other and far better land, we shall still have work to do throughout the long ages. Only we will then see, as we go on, that it is all done for the Master, and under his own eye, and we will like it and never grow weary of it as we often do here when we don't clearly see to what end we are working, and our work brings us in contact with all sorts of men and things not pleasant to rub against. I suppose that the more we work here, the better we shall be trained for that other work, which, after all, is the great end towards which we move, or ought to be moving. Well, I did not start out to sermonize, but somehow or other your letter started my thoughts in that direction. I would like to take the belongings and sail for that quiet land, but we will have to wait some little time yet, and I suppose each one will reach it alone, and the first arrived wait for the others. I hear that Elsie is to leave you in October. Is it possible that time can fly so rapidly? Before many years, May will perhaps leave us, and just now we are getting ready to send Max to boarding school, an awful business, as you can tell from your own experience in sending Pete to Dr. Colt's. I think this scattering of children is the wrong wrench we get down here but there is nothing to be done but do the best for them as we understand it, and to thank God they don't and can't feel it as we do. What changes since we first crossed the Atlantic together? How many years ago? What a mess in politics! I am trying to take the least possible interest in such matters, as the only way to keep one's temper. Mrs. McClellan unites with me in love to Mrs. Barlow, Elsie, and yourself, and I am always your friend, George B. McClellan, SLMB. In editing this volume for the press, I have tried to do that which my friend would approve. The discretion which he gave me was ample. I have exercised it by omissions, not by changes. 
Of course, his work was unfinished when he left it. Living prepared for the call whenever it might come, serving God as he had served his country, always ready for whatever command he might receive, it is nevertheless certain that, when the order came to go to duty in another life, he was not expecting it. In writing his memoirs, he had made no haste to complete them. Probably, had he lived to extreme old age, there would still have been much to be written. For years after the Civil War, he declined to write anything about it. He had no anxieties for himself and his own reputation. An abiding faith in time and the calm judgment of his country kept him from any care about the misstatements, misrepresentations, and falsehoods of which he, more than perhaps any American who had lived before him, excepting Washington, had been made the subject. Besides, he always gave less thought to himself and his own reputation than any man I ever knew or heard of. He was a man of very deep feeling, with the passions of all ardent souls, but so absolute had become his habitual self-control and subjection of all passionate resentment, so complete the self-abnegation which characterized him, I can affirm with certainty that he always felt more sorrow for the man who maligned him than for himself. Once, when I showed him a slander, a pure fabrication, which had been published on the authority of General Burnside, he read it, laid down the magazine with a quiet laugh, said, Poor Burn, he didn't know what he was saying, and after a few kindly words about his old friend, dropped the subject. In vain he was urged to publish the demonstrations he possessed of the falsehood of this and similar attacks. His happiness in life consisted in what he was always doing for others, without thought of self. As he had never sought position, command, or promotion, so he never asked his countrymen to give him honor or thanks. It was only when I urged on him that his children had a right to possess his own story that he took the subject into consideration. Afterward, while in Europe, he began to write out personal reminiscences, which from time to time he continued after his return to America. A fire destroyed all his manuscript. In 1881, he resumed the work. He did not labor at it continuously, with intent to produce a book, but wrote as the humor seized him. His report, made in 1863, but held back by the War Department for some months, had been full, accurate, and exhaustive. It was published in 1864. No statement in it has ever been controverted. This report did not include any accounts of his personal relations to the civilians, who directed the course of political events and misdirected military operations during the first two years of the war. These accounts he wrote, accompanying them with letters, dispatches, documents, whatever might throw light on history. He rewrote and extended a large part of the military history which his report had given in brief, and from time to time inserted pages of manuscript here and there in those parts of it which he had not rewritten. Thus, as years passed, he was extending and annotating a history, at all times complete in itself as a narrative, and however long he had lived would probably have enriched it from year to year with more and more of interesting material. His sudden death interrupted the progress of his work. When I came to examine the collected and arranged papers which he entrusted to me, verbally while living, and by his last will, I found not only the narrative which I have styled McClellan's own story, but sufficient illustrative and explanatory documents, letters, and dispatches to form several volumes. He had not written with reference to publication. It was expressly for his children that he was preparing his memoirs, and there was a great deal in them which was intended solely for their eyes. A century hence, every word, perhaps, might be interesting to those who enjoy personal memoirs, but as a matter of course, it has been my duty to withhold such portions as I think he would not have published now. 
I have exercised my discretion in reserving for future publication much of the material he had arranged, which would now be valuable and doubtless acceptable, but would have extended this volume to a series of two or three. All the footnotes in the volume are mine. Another class of material came into my hands. McClellan had been married only a few months before the outbreak of the war. Not the least sacrifice which he made in entering the service was the breaking up of the home, his first home, in which he had found the first happiness of a laborious life. Sometimes during his public service, Mrs. McClellan was able to be with him, especially while he was in Washington. When they were separated, he found his only rest and refreshment in writing to her. To no other person in the world did he open his whole soul. The perfection of their love, the absolute confidence which he reposed, and wisely reposed, in her, made his letters not only graphic accounts of daily events, great and small, but an exposure of his inmost feelings. I found among his papers some extracts from these letters, which he had made to aid him in writing his memoirs, but the letters were supposed to have vanished in the fire. When they were discovered, carefully sealed for the one only person to whom they belonged, I asked for fuller extracts. I confess that I hesitated very much about giving any part of these letters, written in the most sacred confidence of life, to the public eye. Others advised that, as he belonged to his country, and innumerable citizens and soldiers loved him with devout affection, they could well be allowed, had indeed a right, to read portions of those letters which reveal McClellan the man, as his narrative shows McClellan the soldier. By far the larger portion of the letters, and of every letter, belongs to that confidence which not even death affects. In determining what parts may and what may not be published, I have been influenced by the wish to present to his fellow citizens who honored him, and his soldiers who loved him, some of that view of his character which those nearest to him always had. And I have done this with the guiding trust that he will approve what I have done when I again meet him. W.C. Prime, August 10, 1886. End of Biographical Sketch, Part 2